news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. All right, everyone. So we are going to answer your questions. Carly, will you kick us off? Yes. I just want to say thank you for all of your great questions. Thank you for sending them in. I think we got some really interesting questions for you guys today, some different ones that we haven't heard before. So I'm excited to dive into these ones. Hi, my name is Sherry, and I have a question about nonfiction writing. And because of Cece's recent query for a nonfiction book, I thought maybe you all would have an answer to my question. Specifically, what is the difference between academic and trade publishing? I am a graphic design professor. I am working on a book proposal about the history and practice of hand lettering. It's not a textbook, but I guess it's a little more academically focused. But the hand lettering community uh, loves to buy books, and I see this as maybe a good fit for a publisher such as... Chronicle books or, or something similar in that scale. And I'm just not sure if I should be thinking along the lines of getting an agent because I have one traditionally published book with an academic publisher that I just pitched directly to them. But I'm just thinking that this might have a broader audience and maybe I'm selling myself short if I don't go a little bit bigger with it. And I just, I would love any advice on this topic because I'm very confused. All right. Thank you, Sherry, for that question. So yeah, so nonfiction, I think you're, I think you're kind of getting at something that's kind of complicated, unsurprisingly. So the difference between the academic and trade publishing, right? These are really two entirely different worlds. Sometimes they intersect, 
Sometimes they do not. And so I love this idea that the history and practice of hand lettering concept, but whether it's for trade or academic, I can't say because it really just depends on how pop culture you're going with it, how historical you're going with it, what the writing and the tone of it is. So there's a lot of things that come into it. a book like this could be a trade book. It definitely could be a trade book. But again, it depends on if it's being written for a general mass market audience or whether you think it is going to be written for people who have a niche understanding of this particular subject, which kind of gets at, you know, the main point here is that it's niche, right? So, you know, with the with the nonfiction world and trade publishing, a lot of it is driven by platform. You've probably heard us say that a million times, whereas academic publishing is less informed by platform and more informed by academic experience. You know, what exactly? is new that you're saying about you know the industry or the kind of subject matter educational stream that you're working in right so it's a, there's a lot to juggle here so i think you know the best thing to do is just kind of browse the bookstores i think you mentioned chronicle as a potential option for you so yeah i mean i I think a lot of it really depends on who you want the potential audience to be. If you've had an academic book before, you kind of know what that experience is like. So if you want to go the trade route, you just have to check out a lot of kind of trade nonfiction and, and see what that kind of tone difference is. Hi, super quick question about titles. Is it okay to query your book with a title that is already taken if the existing title wasn't traditionally published or widely released. I have a title that I love for my current work in progress, but I did find one other book with that title available on Amazon. So I just want to make sure this isn't a deal breaker. I don't want to look like I didn't do my research, but also it seems like a smaller book. So I wanted to see if that would be okay. Thanks so much. Longtime fan of the podcast. Bye. Okay, this is also a really good question that we get all the time. I mean, I get all the time via DMs and stuff. So it's totally fine to use the title. It's not a big deal at all. You're at the querying stage. We do often, you know, advise you not to use like a big title, but that's not what you're asking. You're asking about the title of a self-published book that, you know, by your own words, it's 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 not a book that a lot of people will know about. Like a title is usually what, five words, maybe three, maybe seven. Think of all the titles that are out there. Like there's a, probably a lot of books with the same title and it's not a problem at all. So so don't stress about it and, and use the title if it's the right title for your book. Thank you, Bianca, Carly, and Cece for everything you do for the writing community. My question is, if you're writing a YA book set in another time period, is it okay to have the characters speak in the teen slang of that time? I recently had a beta reader tell me she was confused by a phrase a character from the 1990s used. Is it on the reader to look it up or should I just cut the phrase entirely? Thanks so much. Bye. Okay. So this is kind of a quintessential YA problem, which is how do we write in teen speak that makes sense for being authentic to how teens actually speak, but also what is easily readable by the reader, right? And, and and how that all makes sense. So I think you're juggling with something kind of kind of complicated. So you said it was the 90s, potentially, I think you said slang of the 90s. So I mean, I, it, it's hard for me to answer this without seeing it, because it depends on how frequently you're using slang or how frequently you are kind of speaking in teen speak. The most important thing is readability. So if your reader does have to kind of stop and go look something up, number one, they're not going to go look it up. Number two, um, that's making them stop and you're pulling them out of the story. So every time you kind of think, oh, this might potentially pull them out of the story, that's an opportunity that you have to lose somebody, right? Whether it's an agent or an editor or a future reader. So really readability is, is your main goal here. Hi, Bianca, Cece and Carly. When querying, is it okay to use a comp from a self-published author? 
Aspects of my novel are similar to a self-published series that's doing very well on Amazon. Can I comp this or would it be frowned upon? And if it's a no, then if the self-published author had created their own imprint for publishing purposes, would this be allowed for comps? Thanks very much. Okay, also really good question. So I would avoid unless it's selling tons of copies. And I do mean tons of copies. Like I'll admit to being confused by the second half of the question. If I am understanding it correctly, then the answer is still no. Like don't do it. The reason why you want to comp a traditionally published book is because the acquisitions editor, right, who is going to fall in love with your book after your agent sends it out, is going to need those comps to make a case internally to their sales team to say, look, this is a great story and look at how well these comps did. So this book will also potentially do really well. So yeah, I would just avoid using a comp of a book that didn't do well. I know that's harsh. I'm sorry. This is a very astute question for somebody that listens to the pod a lot. They were saying, yeah, I, I do pay attention a lot to titles. I agree with you. It, it it will always be a working title. And the number of times that titles change is like 80% to 20% that titles remain as they are. So how should you present a title? You should present a title with absolute confidence, absolute confidence. You should not be presenting it as if it is a working title because our goal is to, you know, hopefully keep that title. To know that you're open to it later on is potentially important, but I really don't see any use in drawing attention to the fact that you're not 100% in love with your own title. To me, any opportunity to show confidence in your own writing and your own decision-making as a creative individual is what you should be doing in the querying process. You shouldn't be casting doubt on your own writing in the querying process. So just don't draw attention to the fact if you're like not 100% about it. The reason that I keep drawing attention to titles, and I probably will in every episode that we record, is that they do get people's attention. Really good titles really do get our attention. Really good titles sometimes can sell a book, you know, because when I'm pitching a book to editors, what do I put in the subject heading, right? I put the title every time, every time I put the title. So I use that as an opportunity to catch somebody right from their inbox. So yeah, I do. I, I also think like in a query letter, you know, as we break them down every week, everything is a tool in your tool belt, right? And so if a title is a tool in your tool belt, how are you using that tool to your best ability? And I just think you should try to do the best you can. Good morning, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. I have a question about more suspenseful novels. I have heard many terms used to describe these sorts of books, including domestic suspense, psychological suspense, psychological thriller. And I was hoping that you could shed some light on how you differentiate these terms and if there is a difference between them. I appreciate your help. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay, interesting, because I was talking about this with a friend the other day. So I do think that domestic suspense and psychological thriller are often used interchangeably. Both terms make me think of fiction in which the protagonist is in a constant state of danger, but unlike a straightforward suspense novel or thriller novel, the elements of that danger are a bit more internal, like it's more psychological in nature, focusing on the relationships. So if I were to distinguish between the two, I would say that domestic suspense is set within homes, hence domestic, like focusing on family, spousal relationships, family secrets, whereas a psychological thriller could, could be set anywhere. But the tone of both are very similar. And again, like 
they are used interchangeably. When in doubt, I would say like, look at your comps and see how they were positioned. I doubt that an agent who's interested in domestic suspense would not be open to seeing a psychological thriller and vice versa. So when you're in terms of querying, I don't think you have to worry about it too much. Though, of course, it's great that you're paying attention. Hey, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. First off, I want to thank you for the knowledge that you so generously share with your audience. It's helped me so much over the years, so much that I landed a publishing deal and my young adult novel Worth It will hit bookstores in May of 2024, which brings me to the question that I have for you today. I'll be starting revisions soon, and I was wondering, what do you see are the biggest mistakes or issues that sneak their way past authors and editors and wind up in published novels? So I thought if I had this question, maybe other authors in the middle of revisions might as well. Thank you very much. Have a great rest of your day. All right. Well, congratulations on the publishing deal. First of all, well done you. I think you're, you're asking such a like keener question and made me smile because you've made it this far in the process. And you're like, what, what if something possibly happens? What if something possibly, you know, slips through or what could I possibly kind of guard against? Right. And so just a reminder, there's a lot of kind of phase of your publishing journey that you just can't control. Right. And so you will be sent copy edits and there will be a proofreader depending on your publisher. There's a certain number of level of people that things go through in terms of, you know, potential errors that might slip in. They're called past pages, first past pages, second past pages, third past pages, right? Like hopefully we're not getting to fourth and fifth, but you know, hopefully it'll all be clean by the time you get to their third past pages. So I'll be honest with you, sometimes spelling errors make their way to published books. Right. And so it happens. You know, there's not a lot that we can always do to to prevent every single potential error in an 80,000 word book, right? But we do our best. So really just trust the journey, trust the process. If you're working with, you know, great professionals, they will set you up for success. Hi, my name is Adrian, and big thank you for this continually amazing resource for writers everywhere. I am at the stage of preparation where I'm making a website so agents that I am querying can find me on the wild, wild web. I haven't made a lot of decisions about my brand yet. I will probably just use my name. My question is, do I have to buy the domain? I am kind of techie and would like to make a GitHub page, but the domain would be authorname.github.io rather than something slick like authorname.com, but there would be no ads. Is that okay? Any thoughts you can share about a barely published writer pulling off this step of agent querying is much appreciated. Thank you, and from my place in time, Happy New Year. Okay, interesting. So I think it's fine. Having a website is a great idea because it helps people learn more about you. This is not something that I knew was important up until like two years ago. I feel like I didn't know it. Maybe even maybe even, even more recently. Nowadays, I understand just because I've often had to look up writers. It's just so easy to have like one space where they get to curate, where all the information is compressed, where I don't have to like scroll through social media, right? Because that's just a different sort of front facing space. So I think it's a great thing that you're doing that, but I don't think the domain is actually like, I don't think it matters. You don't have to be super techie to do it. And if it's easier for, for you to do it in the way that you're suggesting, that's totally fine. Yeah. Good on you for doing that. I see advice that you can resubmit a query to an agent if your novel is unrecognizable from your first query. How far does a rewrite need to go to be considered unrecognizable? 50% new material, settings and characters, 75%? Do names have to change in the entire core plot or is it sufficiently unrecognizable if it is a complete rewrite, new settings, new query, new synopsis, new first chapters, the portion that the agent is likely to have read on the first attempt? This is a this is a tricky question. I mean, I think this is such an agent 
preference thing. You know, I always say there is no harm in resubmitting because you just don't know what happened on any given day or, you know, if they really took it in when they saw it in their inbox. I mean, there's just so many things where you might as well resubmit it if it is changed. So how far does it have to go? You, you know, you quoted a great, a great line, right? Like it, it does have to be quite changed. So you said, is it 50%, 75%, right? Like what is, what is the magical number? It really unrecognizably is, is the best answer. I don't have a magic, you know, a magic answer to say like, if you do this, then the agent will, you know, request it. Right. Like I think the most important thing is if an agent has read it, either a partial or a full, you need to let them know. It's like, Hey, I, I, you know, I queried you, you actually requested pages on this, but it has been quite changed. If they haven't requested any pages, it's not imperative that you actually spell all this out. But if they have requested pages, you don't kind of want to like, you know, blindside them by sending something that they actually have read and confuse them a little bit about that. So that's kind of the only, the only difference, but if you have changed it, made major changes, you know, I say, I always say go forth. You never know. Hi, my question is about querying or selling a book when you have a writing partner. Cece and Carly, do you think it's more beneficial to name both writers as separate people or to create a joint pseudonym kind of like Christina Lauren did? Thank you. Okay, interesting. So I don't have a preference personally especially at the querying stage i it wouldn't matter to me if you are using a joint pseudonym and obviously explaining that in your author bio or if you're like submitting using the two names in the signature it's a good question but when i say it doesn't it doesn't matter to me i mean it in the best way i all i care about at the stage is the story and if the story is amazing then i'm gonna want to chat with both authors right and we'll discuss options including the joint pseudonym option or, you know, both names on the cover of the book. I have heard from editors that for a book sale, sometimes it's better to have just one name. I haven't heard this a lot, but I have heard it from more than one editor. So, so that might be something to consider. But again, at this stage, the most important thing is like focus on your story, you know, explain your situation in the author bio paragraph really briefly, and we can just take it from there. When perusing manuscript wish lists, it seems like women's fiction, upmarket fiction, and book club fiction are all used interchangeably. Is that right? And if not, what is the difference between them? Thank you. Okay, so this is an interesting question because I actually got into this on Twitter this week, like the, the week that I'm recording this. So is it used interchangeably? Kind of. You know, what is the difference? Depends on the person you ask. So gosh, I mean... Women's fiction, I believe that the Women's Fiction Writers Association defines it as an emotional journey. They don't actually specify whether the character, main character has to be a woman or not. But generally, women's fiction has a female main character. It doesn't mean that the other categories don't, but, you know, an emotional journey usually of a female character. So that's kind of that. And then upmarket... I think the best way that I can explain this is go over to my Instagram because I actually made Instagram reels defining commercial. What is commercial? What is up market? What is literary? And they're pinned at the top of my Instagram profile. So you could just like go right to them. And so I cover what, what up market is there. So head over there and then book club really book club is all about conversation starter, right? Like, you know, like Joe Piazza and Christine prides, like we are not like them, right? Like what is a book that really is going to generate conversation in the whole point of it? Cause I think a lot of people assume or hope, or, you know, 
think that maybe if it's a certain of a certain readability or accessibility that like every book can be a book club book, like potentially, yes, every book, you know, every book could be a book club book, but really book club is about conversation, not just, you know, a group of people in the neighborhood getting together to have a glass of wine, even though that is always nice as well. So, so yeah, that's kind of the main, the main difference up market kind of coming back to that. I, I think it changes depending on who you ask, but really like commercial fiction is, as a reminder, any of our category fictions, right? Like our thrillers, our mysteries, our romances, that sort of thing. Our literary fiction is our quality of writing, craft-driven books, capital L literary, more serious, you know, subject matter that are potentially not as plot-driven. Upmarket fiction is just everything in the middle, right? It's it's things that are very character-driven, but also very plot-driven, but also have very, you know, careful attention to language, covering things that maybe might be, you know, ripped from the headlines, might have that kind of conversational book club appeal to them, but also might be covering things that are a bit more serious or things that also could be more lighthearted, right? It's all about the treatment. So, you know, it's, it is really hard, I think, to navigate these. But as I said, head over to my Instagram pinned reels um, and you'll be able to see my breakdowns. All right. That's it for today's questions. Thank you so much for asking such great questions. We really appreciate it. And till next time. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. 
That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another comps session with our favorite book person, Emily Summer from East City Bookshop in Washington, D.C. If you're ever out there, please head to the bookstore, support them. Emily, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, please, if you're in D.C., come and say hello. Yeah, it's one of my favorite bookstores, and I love the booksellers there. And, you know, for our listeners, make it a journey. I know a few people, bookish people, who take these kind of trips once a month to different bookstores in different states as they try and tick them all off their list. And as writers, I feel like these are the kind of pilgrimages we should be making ourselves. Okay, so Emily, let's kick us off. We have got a lot of comps today. You guys are keeping us busy. We have 23 requests. Now, for those of you who are interested in getting a request in, go to our website, theshitaboutwriting.com. Go to the Ask a Question page. There is a link there so that you can record your question. You have up to a minute to record it and we will get to it as soon as we possibly can. Okay, Emily, kick us off with the first question. Hi, I'm looking for comp titles for my YA fantasy. The main character feels isolated at her new school. She has no friends and is suffering from imposter syndrome. Then she accidentally infiltrates a secret cohort of time-traveling pupils. At first, she struggles to fit in and make friends, but they all have to pull together in the face of mysterious disappearances and the shadow creatures that stalk them through time and space. Its tone is on the younger end of the YA age bracket. It's not too gritty and it has more of an adventure vibe to it. It is essentially a story about friendship and acceptance, but with the backdrop of a boarding school mystery with a fantasy twist. I also wondered if there was a comp that captured having low self-esteem and finding acceptance in a friendship group that wasn't expected. Thank you so much for your help. Love the podcast. Thanks very much. Bye. Okay, so for this YA fantasy, which is younger YA, as our caller said, I thought about The Marvelers by Danielle Clayton, which is brand new. It came out last year. It has done so well for us. Kids love it. And it's sort of, I would say, upper middle grade, so can span the transition between upper middle grade and younger YA, but also a really great friends, a team banding together story and fantasy. I also would suggest A Winter's Promise by Christelle Dabos, which is a YA novel. It's a series, actually. This is the first one from Europa Editions which is probably the best publisher of translated literature in the United States. So this is a French translation, and it has that sort of gentle YA fantasy feel that might work. 
in terms of a comp that would capture the low self-esteem and the lack of friends and confidence of our main character, I have a realistic fiction suggestion. And that is another upper middle grade, which I think can work for young YA, called The Miscalculations of Lightning Girl by Stacey McAnulty. This is one that my now teenager absolutely loved. And the main character, the the lightning girl of the title, is a savant, a math savant. And because of that, she struggles to connect with her peers. And part of the book is her sort of finding her place. So I would suggest that one to suggest the self-esteem and sort of finding your place and finding your friends piece. And then um, The Marvelers or A Winter's Promise or another another YA fantasy for the rest of it. Wonderful, Emily. Thank you. Okay, here is request number two. Hey from Florida. My name is Debbie, and I'm hoping you may assist me with some accurate comps for my 90,000 word upmarket women's fiction novel laced with elements of suspense. When the cult winds blow brings the aesthetic of where the crawdads sing by Delia Owens with religious elements of devoted by Jennifer Mathieu. My concern with the last comp is that it's YA and therefore not within genre. Here's a little about my work. Marin Kent's idyllic Florida childhood withers when her family joins a restrictive evangelical cult. At 16, she attends the cult's boarding school on one of its many campuses. On selection day, she is chosen for a job at the cult headquarters. There, she discovers sinister secrets of racketeering, sexual abuse, and violence. Seeking help from her Florida neighbor, Ophelia Parks Esquire, they work together to formulate a plan. During their investigation, they uncover cult connections with a dangerous government leader. Thank you for all you do for our writing community. I love a cult. I think lots of people love a cult. I couldn't tell for this one, the caller used the term cult, but also it's evangelical. So I can't tell if it's how how cultish it is and how much of an indictment of an evangelical church it is. But the evangelism piece made me think of one of my favorite books in recent years that deals with this subject, God Spare the Girls by Kelsey McKinney, which I might have suggested on previous sessions because it's a great look at a young woman wrestling with the evangelical church that she was raised in and her current place in the world and and realizing that there's a lot of hypocrisy in the adults that run the church. It doesn't quite rise to the level of conspiracy and wrongdoing that it sounds like is in this situation, but it definitely wrestles with those same issues. Likewise, Revival Season by Monica West is another book where a young woman wrestles with her the fate that she was brought up in, the fate of her family, and whether she believes and whether she wants to continue going along that path. For the conspiracy angle and sort of the government connection and all of this criminal activity, I was reminded of All Her Little Secrets by Wanda Morris. doesn't have anything to do with a church, but in this book, it is a mystery where a woman who's in-house at a large corporation discovers a lot of nefarious dealings in her corporation and in the sort of good old boy white network that she works in. She's a black woman. I describe it as John Grisham's The Firm if the protagonist was a a strong black woman in the South. So I feel like that might capture the sort of Southern conspiracy criminal element, and then maybe the others would help with that evangelism angle. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Comp question number three. 
I'm struggling to find comps for a YA fantasy novel, 65,000 words, two teen girls, 16 and 18, accidentally swim through the bottom of a lake at a summer camp in northern Michigan and are thrust into mending the psychological wounds of campers sleeping on the other side of the lake. Harper officially becomes the keeper and takes on the memories of the previous keepers, more or less becoming possessed by the history of the place so she can fulfill the role. While Rebecca really isn't supposed to be there and does everything in her power to leave. As the summer wears on, Rebecca is just beginning to accept her new reality when she realizes that Harper has withheld key information about the camp director who's trauma is directly connected to losing a friend to the lake, and that Harper has initiated calling a new keeper below the waterline, further amplifying the trauma of their community. The novel uses fantasy to portray the healing process of internal family systems and experiential therapy model. The world below the lake gives access to the psyches of campers in a visual way and would be a beautiful place to inhabit if chosen and not forced, given the circumstances essentially an escape room for Rebecca, who eventually finds her way home. Writing style is clean, has been described as elegant. The book has a lot of wisdom about mental health, sort of self-help embodied in narrative. Thank you. Okay, props to caller number three for fitting so much in to the one minute time frame. I had to listen to this one several times. It reminded me of my policy debate days in high school when we had to sort of speed talk our way through arguments. So I love this premise. I couldn't really think of anything that is directly on point to this summer camp fantasy angle, but I love a summer camp. And that part of it made me think of The Names They Gave Us by Emery Lord. That is an older title, so it might be too old for, for our purposes, but it is a young adult book that talks about trauma. It is partially set in a summer camp, so I think thematically and setting-wise, that's a really good comp. The angle of the water and the fantasy that is goes below the waterline made me think of Bethany Morrow's A Song Below Water. I would absolutely look at that one. And that is new. So I think that that in, in terms of the timeliness, that's a really good one. And Bethany Morrow's star only continues to rise. She's written adult sci-fi and fantasy, adult literary fiction, this young adult book that I just mentioned. And then in terms of other comps, I might focus on authors who are similar in tone, which I'm not quite certain based on this voicemail. You know, there's in the YA world, there are sort of like the gentle Sarah Dessen, Jenny Han vibes versus the sort of Jessica Goodman, Holly Jackson, thriller horror vibes versus the Angie Thomas, Jason Reynolds, sort of realistic fiction about trauma vibes. And so I would see where you think your book fits in and throw out those, the authors who write that, the book that feels that way and has that sort of tone. Excellent suggestion. Okay, comp number four. Hello, Bianca and lovely bookseller. Thank you so much for your podcast and guidance. I'm seeking comps for my book club fiction novel, Heavy Metal Thunder, which is set in Berkeley, California in the late 90s. I'm considering Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid, which is a good fit for the tone, the music industry setting, and the doomed romance. The core of the story is a family drama, so I'm also considering The Most Fun We Ever Had by Claire Lombardo. However, both those books are very successful, and the latter is a 500-plus page saga, which is different than this book. Heavy Metal Thunder follows the life of Kate, a young guitar phenom who abandons her overbearing family to join a rock band that skyrockets to fame and a world of drugs, sex, and rock and roll. When an unplanned pregnancy forces Kate to quit her on-tour lifestyle, she returns home and hangs up her guitar seemingly forever. But then tragedy strikes and a family secret is revealed. Kate and her family must face the uncomfortable truths about themselves and each other before they all fall apart. Any recommendations would be so appreciated. Thank you. I'm a sucker for anything set in the 90s and anything that has music to it. So this is this is speaking to me. I also love a family drama. 
I would say that I would say no to the Daisy Jones comp, as you said. I think that one is just such a juggernaut that it's probably not worth it to compare. For the Claire Lombardo, I love The Most Fun We Ever Had. I love that book. I do think it did extremely well, but I don't think it did so well that the person that you're querying would automatically say like, there's no way. So I would consider that one in terms of just being an excellent family story. I don't know that its length necessarily dooms it as a comp unless this one is particularly taut and brief. So I think that could absolutely work. I would also look at Perfect Tunes by Emily Gould. So that's the story of an indie musician who is finding her way and finding some success in the late 90s, early 2000s, somewhere in that realm. And then a pregnancy sort of curtails that career for her. And she deals with, in the second half of the book, uh, motherhood and, and the sort of diversion of her dream. So I think that one sounds really good. I always recommend The People We Keep by Allison Larkin in terms of a, any any struggling musician trying to find her way with some with family drama. I love that book. And it's definitely book club fiction. So the tone, I think, would probably work. And I would look to at one of my other favorites in recent years, Mary Jane by Jessica Anya Blau. So there probably aren't as many plot similarities, but it's got the rock vibes. It's got the family drama. It's set in the 70s instead of the 90s, but it's got that period piece feel. So that one might work as well. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, I'm a huge, huge Claire Lombardo fan, and I'm so excited that she's going to be one of our speakers at our upcoming Deep Dive Workshop series. Her characterization is killer, and that is actually what she's going to be breaking down for us at the Deep Dive Workshop series. So remember, if you still want to sign up for that, it begins on the 31st of January. Go to our website, The Shit About Writing, and look for the Deep Dive Workshop series tab to sign up for that. Okay, comp request number five. I'm looking for comps for my literary coming-of-age novel set in the summer of 1990 in Southern California. It is told from the first-person POV of Jess, the daughter of a hard-drinking, largely absent commercial fisherman. When Jess returns home for a court-interpreting internship, her troubled older sister Roxanne casually mentions she and Jess's former longtime boyfriend and recent ex-Trace have been attending AA meetings together, straining the already complicated relationship between the sisters. Jess and Trace spend the summer together, sensibly as friends, though it feels like they are on the brink of getting back together. When Trace is arrested for driving under the influence and blames Jess for his actions, Jess is blindsided by his accusation, yet is determined to do anything she can to help. The novel has the romantic fixation and longing of my so-called life, including similar moments of levity. Like Rachel Kong's Goodbye Vitamin, I focus on heartbreak and family. It's similar in tone and sentiment to David Levithan's The Lover's Dictionary, but that came out in 2011 and I'm worried it's too old to use. Thanks for any suggestions. Okay, another 90s right in my heart. So for the fact that this character's father is a commercial fisherman, has me feeling sort of like a blue collar coastal vibe, which makes me think of The Midcoast by Adam White that just came out this past year. That is a wonderful book about the mid coast of Maine and sort of the lives of these commercial fishermen there. But that's a crime story. So you might think of, you might look at that and see if there's enough of a setting compare. We don't know where this is. I don't know where this one is set, but check that one out just because of the setting might have some similarities in terms of connecting with an ex or a love that is in AA that has fallen on hard times that who is arrested 
look at Hannah Halperin's I Could Live Here Forever, which is not out yet, but is about to come out. Her previous book was called Something Wild that saw some success and a lot of love, but from the readers who found it. This is a really uh, beautiful story of a young woman who falls in love with an addict and their deep bonds, the deep bonds between those two characters, despite all of the outside conflicts and tensions with her family, his family. So that one might have some similarities too. And I also have to mention the best literary coming of age that I have read in years is Sam by Allegra Goodman, which just came out at the beginning of this year. It came out on January 3rd. It is a gorgeous book. It's Jenna Bush Hager's book club pick this month came out from the Dial Press. And it's just a beautiful story of a young woman coming of age. It starts when she's about, I don't know, eight and goes until she's in her early 20s. And that might have the same feel as well. Thank you. I've been frantically scrolling to try and find, ah, here it is, one of Elizabeth Gilbert's first books. It was before Eat, Pray, Love. So before she became really famous, it was called Stern Men. And I think that would make a pretty good comp as well. It's not one of her well-known ones, but I figure if you comp to Elizabeth Gilbert, you're doing well. Emily, what do you think? I think so too. And I love her fiction. It might be sacrilege to say it, but I prefer her fiction over Eat, Pray, Love. Like, I think she's just such a gifted novelist. 100%. The Signature of All Things is probably one of my favorite novels of all time. Having said that, I did not like City of Girls, so shoot me there, but I loved The Signature of All I Things. Loved, I did too. I didn't know I could read a book about moss and, and enjoy it, but that book yeah. is just absolutely fantastic. Amazing. Okay, our comp request number six. Hi, ladies. Thanks so much for all that you do. I am looking for help with comp titles for my work in progress, not what I remember. Someone's been impersonating Christina McAllister online. The catfisher has been targeting her high school crush, Van, who returns to town convinced that the two of them should have ended up together and would have if not for Christina's fundamentalist Christian upbringing. Christina suspects that the culprit is her estranged best friend, Stas, who's always thought Christina settled for less than she deserved in her prosaic suburban life and marriage. But Christina still wants to keep the past behind her until the catfisher starts messaging her sister, upsetting the whole family with claims that the girls suffered abuse as children. In order to shut the catfisher up for good, Christina will need to confront Stas and find out why she's meddling in her life. But reality and the catfisher's identity are much more complicated than they seem. Told in a dual timeline, the stories of the past in 1999 and the present in 2022 collide as Christina must decide whether to stay in her current life or forget everything she's begun to remember. Thanks so much. Okay, I'm into this catfisher drama. I love I love the sort of, you know, the the secrets and the questions of identity here. I can't think of anything that is exactly similar in terms of novels, but we might want to look at a novel Obsession by Caitlin Barash, which came out last year and did really well. It had a lot of success behind the sort of bad art friend viral story, and it is a similar situation. I don't know. It's a woman who becomes gradually more and more obsessed with her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend and insinuates herself in the ex-girlfriend's life through finding her through these untoward purposes. She she doesn't know who she is. So in terms of questions of subterfuge and identity and, you know, trying to, to deceive people and trick people, that could be a good one. And then I'll recommend God Spare the Girls by Kelsey McKinney again, just in terms of fundamentalist upbringing and potential abuse in the church. And remember, we had Caitlin on our show. We interviewed her about a novel obsession. So if this sounds like a good comp for you and you haven't listened to that episode, go back. It's pretty recent. So, so give that a listen as well. Okay, Emily, comp number seven. 
Hi, and thanks for your expert advice. My novel, Never Rest, is a contemporary reimagining of Dante's Purgatorio that has been compared to The Good Place by my beta readers. Rosalie and Max are reality TV stars, and they don't even know it. For centuries, Heaven has been watching them experience a series of increasingly dysfunctional relationships on the hit afterlife show, Love Through the Ages. When Max and Rosalie end their current lives estranged, the show is at risk. Purgatory's senior caseworker, Amelia, is tapped to salvage the relationship. Amelia has been trapped in purgatory for decades and is desperate to curry favor, but when she digs into the couple's past, she's disgusted by Heaven's voyeuristic obsession. Defying orders, Amelia befriends Max and Rosalie, and they work to unravel the mystery of how their toxic relationship began in the hope that disrupting it will lead to their freedom. The novel explores the delicate balance between obligation and desire, as well as how social media and reality TV can distort even the best intentions. There are three POVs and epistolary glimpses of Heaven's social media feed. This one sounds very fun. I love the idea of like an afterlife reality show. It sounds very funny with its comps to the good place. There's a brand new book came out at the end, I think the end of last year called Sign Here by Claudia Lux that I think might have similar vibes in that one. It is people who work in hell trying to sign up their next person who's going to, who's going to go to hell. And, but you know, sort of a, a wacky premise. I would look at that. The social media reality TV angle makes me think of Followers by Megan Angelo. I think that one sounds really good in terms of capturing what's healthy and what's not, not the line between that when it comes to, to social media and television. And then I'll also throw out a YA novel from a couple of years ago called Layover Land by Gabby Noon. So yes, it's YA, but it's a very good place vibes. A teen dies and ends up in layover land, which is purgatory. And it's it's sort of an airport, but it is also like a sassy, funny afterlife story. So I would look at that one, even though it's young adult. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Number eight. Hi, Bianca, Carly, Cece, and Emily. Thank you so much for the comp segment. It's one of my favorites. I'm seeking comps for my work of historical women's fiction, and here goes the logline. The Last Romantics follows two musicians, one a concert pianist thrust back out on tour to provide for her young family, the other an up-and-coming composer buckling under the white-hot light of early fame during the last days of the Romantic era in Europe as their careers diverge and their relationship deepens, forcing each to reconcile their identities, their futures, and their art. I'm going more for a tone in the vein of Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet, so upmarket a bit more than your typical historical women's fiction like a Bridgerton. So I'd appreciate any suggestions. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so when we're talking about literary historical fiction, I think that you should just think of authors who, like Maggie O'Farrell, do what you're attempting to do really well. Kate Atkinson, I always think is one of the foremost historical fiction writers in the very literary space. There is a new book that came out toward the end of last year, 2022, called The Whalebone Theater by Joanna Quinn. I would look at that one too. It's not the romantic era. It's the 1920s, but it might have that similar like sweep sweeping feel that you would want. I would look at Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead, which is one of my favorites. I'm going to mention that one later for another comp too. A brand new one that could work, particularly in terms of dealing with the characters' careers and their 
their career paths is The New Life by Tom Crew. That one also takes place in the 19th century. And it's in this case, the career is it's a writing. They're, they're researchers and writers that's not musicians, but that one I think also could work. And then I'd look at really great authors like Dominic Smith and Alan Hollinghurst and see if any of theirs fits or if, or if their style feels right. Wonderful. Yeah, I just devoured Kate Atkinson's latest one. She's an autobi author for me, and I love that one again. Okay, number nine. Hi, I'm Karen, and I need help with comp titles. My book is a cozy-ish mystery about a woman, Mika, whose daughter hands her a clue to a cold case murder. The thing is, she got the clue from an elderly woman with dementia who she volunteers with. Mika works for her cousin, the sheriff, who tells her to look into it however she wants. Mika ends up talking to the women around town and in the senior's home and finds out the boy who was murdered sexually assaulted multiple women, and they're all linked. I think the tone is similar to The Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Booley, but for a slightly older audience. My ideas for comps were Elizabeth is Missing by Emma Healy and And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. Any other comps would be much appreciated. Thank you. This stumped me a little bit because it's cozy-ish, but it seems like it deals with some difficult subjects. If we've got sexual assault and the firekeeper's daughter and Elizabeth is missing, I would not necessarily call cozy. So I'm going to, I'm going to lean into the ish on the the cozy ish. And because the caller mentioned the firekeeper's daughter, I would recommend the cash black bear series by Marcy Rendon. It is a series from Soho press about a teenager, a native teenager who starts to become involved in solving mysteries, even though she is not a police person. She's not a detective. And that has Firekeeper's Daughter vibes. And it might have character similarities in terms of, you know, this is a private person and not a detective story. And I would look at All Good People Here by Ashley Flowers, which came out last year. The most recent Marcy Rendon that I mentioned also came out last year. So those are recent comps. But All Good People Here has a character with dementia. So it is a mystery that wrestles with, you know, the reliability of some of the information that we're told. It's a really just cracking good mystery. It kept me turning the pages and that it might, it might feel right. It's not a cozy, but again, if it, if we're going for cozy ish, you know, not super gritty, not super gruesome, it might work. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Number 10. I'm looking for comparable titles for my multi-POV satirical commercial women's fiction novel that combines the comedy of lessons in chemistry with the parental dynamics of Big Little Lies. In an affluent public school district in Toronto, five women must brave the gossip and politics of the schoolyard. Kimberly devises a plan to host a kindergarten graduation party and invites the whole class to her backyard. This way, she can showcase her superior party hosting skills and use up that gift card for the magician. At the party is Michelle who is beautiful but betrayed by her Hermes bag and her husband. Tammy arrives with a brood of five and is the wise mother with a dark past. Andy is confronted with her ex's indiscretions even before the event, and Amy is new in town and harbors a secret reason to cozy up to Kimberly. Before they can solve their first world problems, the five mothers must navigate the fiasco of each bringing potato salad to the party. Let's hope they survive. Thank you for your time very big little lies vibes, which I think people can't get enough of. I know in our store, we've got lots of customers and I include myself that really enjoy sort of rich people behaving badly, parents doing wrong and struggling. And one of my favorites in that genre is The Gifted School by Bruce Holsinger, which came out maybe three years ago. His most recent book, The Displacements, came out last year and is 
not a comp for this, but I do think he's he is seeing growing success. And the gifted school is very big little lies, very parents in a well-to-do community sort of struggling and doing bad things to themselves and each other. And it's it's, a, it's got some tongue in cheek. It's got some humor. It's not as funny as Lessons in Chemistry, but it's definitely got the affluent school district angle. I would look at Cobble Hill by Cecily Von Ziegeser of Gossip Girl fame. That is a very Brooklyn story, but depending on how urban and and, and whether there is similarities in the affluence, I think that's a really good comp as well. And I would look at the Class Mom series by Lori Gelman. There are several, but again, it's this sort of like affluent, poking fun at the affluent parents and sort of the ridiculous lengths these parents will go to. I would also want to know from for further comps, like what's the actual like plot and conflict of this one, because that might add to some other some other comps. But I think this is a great start. Thank you. Okay, we're almost at the halfway mark, people. Okay, number 11. Hi, I'd love some help in identifying appropriate comps for my part motherhood, part travel memoir entitled Emotional Support Baby, Me, You and the Coup. Complete at 95,000 words, it's the story of my first year as a mother and how I drew enormous strength from my baby. My son was born in Myanmar, where I was living as an expat, and two months into his life, the Myanmar military overthrew the elected government. Suddenly, I wasn't simply learning to parent. I was trapped by passport issues and ever-changing global travel restrictions in a place where the medical system was on its knees, the internet was repeatedly shut down, and the violence escalated daily. Beta readers have laughed and cried as they've relived my journey from Myanmar to the UK, where my son and I got stuck for six months, and then to India, where my husband was offered a job and where I now live. In terms of writing style, I would like to comp a bit of a stretch by Chris Atkins, but it has more of a lobbying message than my book. In terms of content, I'm at a loss right now. The audience will be women, mothers, armchair travellers, visitors to Southeast Asia, and especially anyone who's visited Myanmar. Thank you so much. I mean, my heart is beating faster just thinking about being trapped among this escalating violence. The first book that I think of, and it is a little bit older, but I think it's excellent, and I think it's a really good comp, it's The Rules Do Not Apply, Ariel Levy's memoir. So when Ariel Levy was pregnant, about about 20 weeks pregnant, she was covering a story. She's a journalist, was covering a story in Mongolia, and she had a truly horrific miscarriage in Mongolia. But the trauma of that experience and just the sort of like her thinking about motherhood and being trapped in a foreign place and going through all of these things, I think that might have the same feel, even though the experiences and the setting are different. I think it, it might capture some of that faraway drama and stress. And along the same lines, I might consider Life Undercover, Coming of Age in the CIA by Amaryllis Fox. So it's not a motherhood memoir per se, although Amaryllis Fox does grapple in the book with her ability to be a mother because she is a, a, an undercover CIA agent. So it has that armchair travel that you're in, a, in, in high stakes, very stressful, faraway places. So it might, it might capture some of the same audience, even though they're not, the plots aren't exactly the same. And I love both of those books. Okay, thank you. Number 12. Hi, I'm looking for comps for my upmarket novel told in first person. After his mother's death, Henry finds an envelope of newspaper clippings about a woman who drowned herself and her infant daughter 30 years ago, as well as other evidence implicating some kind of connection between his family and theirs. Meanwhile, Henry and his husband, Matt, are trying to start a family. 
Henry is adamant that surrogacy is the right choice for them, while Matt wants to consider other avenues. Henry agrees with reluctance to give fostering a try, and the couple takes in a three-year-old child. Henry struggles to connect with the boy, and his relationship with Matt becomes strained. He escapes his difficulties at home by trying to solve the mystery of how his family is connected to the drowning victims from all those years ago. My tone is somewhat lyrical and reminiscent of Celeste Ng's writing. The only comp I have so far is the present-day family mystery plotline within Lisa Wingate's Before We Were Yours. I'd be so grateful for any other ideas you have. Thank you. I would suggest A Town Called Solace by Mary Lawson. It is not first-person POV throughout the book, but it does have at its core a story about current family dynamics and a lingering question about something that's happened in the past. So I think that structure and that tension might work well as a comp. It is a beautiful, beautiful book. And along those same lines, I would suggest Two Signal Fires by Danny Shapiro, which just came out in the fall. I think she is such a wonderful writer. And Signal Fires in the same way with A Town Called Solace, it has that same like the past, what has happened in the past is reverberating into the present. And it has that same tension and beautiful family drama. For the foster child versus surrogacy versus bonding with the child piece, I would look at Jessica Winter's The Fourth Child, which is a book that looks at the complicated issues of adoption in that a family adopts a child from Romania and it proves to be very difficult and complicated. And I have to mention to the end of June by Chris Beam, this is not necessarily a comp, but it is really great nonfiction about the American foster care system. And it's a book that has sold really well in our store and our, our social justice book club has read it. And so if anybody is reading or writing about the foster care system to the end of June by Chris Beam is a wonderful, maybe background source or just something to consider. Thank you, Emily. Okay, comp request 13. Hi, I need a comp for an interfaith love story that doesn't work out. Think a gender swapped version of Redford and Streisand in the classic, The Way We Were. Alex is an aspiring writer who doesn't believe in anything, least of all herself, while her boyfriend Jacob is a reformed Jew who would like her to convert. The novel is set in San Francisco in the 70s, where women were joining the workforce in huge numbers and the guys didn't much like it. When Jacob pressures Alex to convert and her mentor at the ad agency where she works takes advantage of her sexually, Alex struggles in both spheres, stuffing her emotions and developing a binge-purge eating disorder, until Alex finally sees that she's the only one that can create the life she really wants. Cops could be Lily King's Writers and Lovers meets the female persuasion, with the interfaith dilemma posed by Chandler Burr's You or someone like you. But that's a really old comp. Any ideas? Thanks so much. Okay, this one also sort of stumped me. I hear San Francisco in the 70s, and I automatically think about Tales of the City by Armistead Maupin. It does not sound like the right comp for this. It is campy and soapy and super gay and hilarious, but it is, I think, the quintessential San Francisco in the 1970s book. So worth a mention. And in for the rest of it, the, the way we were piece, I'm going to have to go back and watch that now that it's in my mind and see beautiful young Redford. I was thinking about books that capture the spirit of the one who got away and that that lasting love and regret because our caller says this is an interfaith love story that doesn't work out. 
And in terms of books about the one who got away, I think Rebecca Searle does a really nice job of writing books with sort of wistful looks back and contemplative about sort of where our lives could have changed and gone differently. I think Taylor Jenkins Reid's early work, some of her early work are also sort of these like The Path Not Taken and The One Who Got Away. And the faith piece, I think, is really challenging. And I love that this story deals with that. When I think about literary books that do tackle the subject of faith, I always think about Marilyn Robinson. Nobody writes about faith, I think, and theological concerns more beautifully than she does. And more recently, Yah Jesse's Transcendent Kingdom does some of that work too. Neither of those are are romances, but they do have a religious preoccupation in them. So it might be worth looking and just seeing if there are any strands that feel similar. Thank you. Okay, CompreQuest 14. I'm having trouble finding recent comps for my book. I had Gorilla and the Bird and My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward, but was told 2017 is too old. Everything You Can't Control is the memoir of the darkest and brightest times of my life and tackles a key issue in mental health, employment discrimination. It's told with dark humor and would appeal to fans of the TV series Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It's the story of a psychotic breakdown that derailed my life and relationships, my battle to keep my marriage and career intact, my hospitalization and journey to recovery, and the discrimination I faced when bipolar disorder forced me to leave my teaching job. Themes include empathy and listening to understand the unique needs of individuals, complicated mother-daughter relationship, and the endurance of love. Thanks so much for your help with all this. Allie Brosh and Jenny Lawson immediately come to mind when I'm thinking about humorous looks at very serious mental health struggles. So I would look at everything that Allie Brosh and Jenny Lawson have written and see what feels the most right and they they are books that deal in a crazy ex-girlfriend funny way with you know serious issues and and do inspire that the empathy that it sounds like this book does as well one that i think is less known but still really great is called the way she feels by courtney cook ally brosh and courtney cook both write graphic novels jenny lawson's books are just memoir but I think that despite the, them being graphic novels, the subject matter feels really spot on. The way she feels is a memoir of borderline personality disorder, but it's very, it has a really great sense of humor. It's a pleasure to read, and it is a very compassionate look at Courtney herself and other people who struggle. Thank you. All right. Comp request 15. Hi, my name is Jen. I'm looking for some comp titles for my multiple POV feminist fairy tale retelling. Five maligned fairy tale witches imprisoned by the Grim Brotherhood form a support group to share their real stories. When one of their members is threatened, they must break free and reclaim their powers to save her. Each section is told from a perspective of a different fairy tale witch from stories such as Rapunzel, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, and Snow White. Tone is light and fun, but with themes of that are a bit more serious around aging and the stories we tell about older women. I've described it as Wicked meets the Calendar Girls. I guess it also has touches of Once Upon a Time, but I was hoping for some more modern comparison books. Thank you. 
Okay, this one sounds like the most fun. We've got a fairy tale retelling. We've got all of these fairy tale witches coming together to support each other. We're told that it's light and fun. It deals with aging. We've got older women. Uh, I got to recommend Witches of Moonshine Manor. I think that that is what could be better than you know, we've Yay! got witches, we've got deal, you know, issues of aging, sisterhood, female friendship. I think that, I mean, obviously, I, hopefully all of your listeners, Bianca, have already read Witches of Moonshine Manor, but this Caller 15, you gotta, you gotta take a look and see if that feels right. And if it doesn't, you will still have a wonderful read that you've just enjoyed. And then I think for fairy tale retellings, most of those are in the YA space. The adult retelling space tends to be recently filled with mythological retellings. But some of the YA, I mean, you know, there's tons of adults who read YA. There's lots of crossover. And so I might look at some of the most popular fairy tale retellings in the YA market. Marissa Meyer, Bridget Kemmerer, Skin of the Sea by Natasha Bowen is a, a Little Mermaid retelling. All of those may skew a little more serious than this one, but that's okay because we've already got Witches of Moonshine Manor to capture the really fun and, and enjoyable part of it. Thank you, Emily. Okay, number 16. Thank you for taking my request for comps. An Impulse of Light is market fiction with elements of romance and intrigue and includes a glimpse into living in homeless camps. 23-year-old Reese momentarily spots his mom who vanished without a trace 15 years ago. Reese is pulled, though, because he's offered his dream job in L.A. He begins to search for her with Megan and Larissa, each with their own story arc. They enlist Scott Crowley, Megan's ex-lover, now a wealthy donor to unhoused people. As Reese and his unlikely trio of allies comb Seattle's homeless camps, he wonders if he really saw her, or is it possible she was murdered, as is the case for many disappeared spouses. Readers learn about Reese's mom's actions and follow his course of emotion as he comes closer to the truth of her disappearance. Thank you. Because of the mother who is potentially homeless and living on the streets and our attempts to find her, I thought about one of my like truly all-time favorite novels of the last 10 years, Long Bright River by Liz Moore, in which we have a Philadelphia detective who is, is attempting to find her sister who is addicted to drugs, potentially working as a sex worker, potentially unhoused. That, though, is very literary, and it is dark. So it might not have the upmarket feel of an impulse of light, but I think it's worth looking at anyway, just because it's, it's worth looking at because it's an absolutely brilliant book. At a wider look, I was thinking about books that do capture that upmarket feel and where characters are reckoning with their family of origin and they're making it through with the help of chosen family. And we've got these friends and allies who are helping our main character. So with those terms in mind, I thought again about The People We Keep by Alison Larkin, which I love to mention. And one of my favorites that I read just at the end of 2022, Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Von Pelt. That is, there's an octopus who's a narrator in that one, but don't let that scare you off. It is a really lovely book about grappling with past grief and attempting to find a way out of that with with the help of current friends and, and chosen family. So I would look at those and maybe look at books that they might not have that exact homeless piece, but have the same feel and vibe. 
Thank you. Yeah, I also loved Remarkably Bright Creatures. Okay, now comp number 17. Hi, Susie, Carly, and Bianca. My name is Geeta Schrader, and I'm hoping you'll help me with some comp titles for my women's fiction novel, The Broken Bangle. Following the sudden death of her mother, Sarah's life is spiraling out of control. But when she finds a photo of the father she never knew, she travels to India where she hopes to simultaneously find him and a bomb for her broken heart. But life is no Bollywood film and India isn't America. When Sarah's father doesn't welcome her with open arms, she finds herself in a foreign country grieving both parents. Surrounded by an unexpected world of wealth and fame and the attention of more than one man, some with nefarious motives, Sarah comes to realize she has two choices find herself amidst the grief, or end up more lost than ever. This story is at times despondent, but ultimately contemplative and hopeful, just like I'm hoping you'll help me. Thank you so much for listening and for all the knowledge you share on a regular basis. Okay, so this one, I think this is one of the most precise comps that I am going to suggest in this whole session, because we've got a woman who, after her mother's death, finds information about her father, and then she goes to find him. That is exactly what happens in Sankofa by Chibundo Onuzo. I loved Sankofa. It's, I think, two years old. Now, in that one, the character goes from the UK to a fictional African country. So it's it doesn't have the Indian piece, but it absolutely has a woman who, after the death of her mother, finds information about her father and goes to, to find him. So I think plot-wise, it's it's an excellent comp, and it's a really great book. I do think it's probably important to capture the the setting of India and not just rely on Sankofa. And I would there are some really great Indian writers now, so I would see, you know, does this feel the most similar to Kiran Desai or Mega Majumdar or Shobha Rao, the newest? Indian fiction that is making a huge splash is Age of Vice by Deep T. Kapoor, which just came out January 3rd. Now, depending, our caller says that there is some, there's grief and, and at times it's despondent, but also hopeful. So just depending on whether the sadness and the despondence in this book also veers into sort of like grit and crime, I might look at Age of Vice. It is extremely, it is, it is a crime thriller and very gritty and it might not feel exactly right, but I think Deep T. Kapoor is really making her mark right now. It's the start of a trilogy, so it's worth looking at just to see if any of it might might ring similar. I'm very excited to get to interview Deep T in the next few weeks. Uh, also, tore through that book. It was absolutely brilliant. Yes. I mean, it's unrelenting. It just, unflinching, unrelenting. It just keeps going. And I'm thrilled that we've got two more volumes in the trilogy to look forward to. Yeah, now we just bloody well got to wait. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, comp number 18. Hi, I'm looking for middle grade comps for my graphic novel, Things You Never Knew Existed, about two sisters, Franny and Mags, who find some of their missing mother's comic books in the garage and send away for a mail order real rocket ship. Franny wants to keep her little sister out of her hair, and Mags wants to spend even more time bonding with her big sis. Surprise, surprise, the ship turns out to be real, and little sis Mags ends up blasting off to Jupiter. What she doesn't know is the trip could lead her to clues that may unleash the mystery of their missing mother's whereabouts. Back at home, Franny knows that having Mags this far away could be too much even for her, and for Dad, who's still wrestling with moving on from Mom's disappearance. So Franny turns to an unlikely group of kid hackers, her BFF, and a kindergarten science camp nerd for help getting her sister back. It's going to take all their resources to bring Mags home and to make the family whole again. Thanks so much. 
Okay. I have to say, working in a bookstore, we cannot get enough middle grade graphic novels. So the more middle grade graphic novels, uh, high quality middle grade graphic novels that come out, the better. My favorite authors in that middle grade graphic space are people that I'm sure this caller and our listeners are familiar with. Raina Telgemeier, Cece Bell, who wrote El Defo, probably my personal favorite, Shannon Hale. I hope people are familiar with the work of Clarabelle Ortega, whose books Witchling are just delightful middle grade graphic novels. And then the space angle of this, which I think sounds just so much fun and delightful. I'll, I'll suggest Zeta, the space girl and Catstronauts. So this sounds like we've got human characters here, but Catstronauts are, as you might expect, cats going to space. But I think within that, within all of those suggestions, there are probably at least a few that will feel right. Thank you. Okay, we've got five left. Breathe, Emily, you can do this. You've, You've got this. Okay, number 19. Hi there. Looking for comp title suggestions for my young adult novel. It is gently magical, and so I've been calling it low fantasy, but it's very much based in our real world. It's set in France. My main character is visiting her relatives there, and she, while she's there, she stumbles across a spinning wheel in the Chateau Doucet, which is the castle that Charles Perrault, the author of Sleeping Beauty, based his fairy tale off of. And she learns after stumbling upon that spinning wheel, she learns that the women in her family are cursed to meet the same fate as Sleeping Beauty. And she must learn how to break the centuries old curse and save her family line. And the comp titles that I have right now are The Wicked Deep by Shay Earnshaw for the sort of gently magical aspect. And then The Hazelwood by Melissa Albert for the more fairy tale retelling aspect. But I think that mine feels a little bit more of a mystery, actually. And I'm wondering if you have any other suggestions. Thank you. Okay, so I suggested in maybe our first comp today, Winter's Promise by Christelle Davos. I would suggest that again here because it has, first of all, it's French. It it has that magical vibe. I I think it has a castle or like a on the cover. So I definitely think that this might capture the spirit of our Sleeping Beauty's castle and, and the spinning wheel. I would also look at Girl Serpent Thorn by Melissa Barshadoust. I hope I'm saying her name correctly. It is more fantasy than mystery. And our caller says, you know, her book is more mystery than maybe some of the books that she mentioned. But Girl Serpent Thorn is about our character breaking a family curse. So I would take a look at that one. That one's done really well for us. I mentioned Bridget Kemmerer earlier in terms of a YA author who deals with fairy tale retellings. I might specifically in this instance look at A Curse So Dark and Lonely. And I would take a look at Holly Black and see if any of Holly Black's books feel right. And then for some adult comps that might have crossover appeal, Maybe Catherine Arden and Alex Harrow, both of those have the the same sort of gentle, low fantasy vibe that our author might be going for here. Wonderful. Okay, number 20. Hi, I'm looking for a comp for my literary fiction manuscript, a nonlinear narrative that time travels from World War II London to contemporary California. But it's important that agents don't write it off as another World War II set historical fiction, as it only begins there. 
And I'm understanding that agents are looking for historical fiction set in World War II, much less lately. Gemma is our 50-year-old main character. Her father is dead and her mother is in an Alzheimer's care unit. The book traverses the terrain of her parents' life and her own romantic life, including what she sees as her major failure, a love affair with a man who turns out to be a non-gender conforming a reality that Gemma can't find a way to live with. I'm thinking still Alice and the Notebook for the memory loss issues, but I don't know what to comp for the non-gender conforming issues or the aspect of the non-linearity. Is that a word? Okay, thanks very much. I hear I hear you, caller, about not wanting to, to position another World War II mystery. I think since you said that the, the story only starts there and is a jumping off point there, I think unless it really is a huge piece of the story, I think you could probably omit that piece if it's just the jumping off point. I was trying to, you know, when I, when I heard this plot summary, I was trying to think instead of specific, very specific comps, I was thinking about books that might capture the, the feel of the breadth of a family story, a family saga where you do feel like you know where the characters came from and how they got here. And we're looking at, you know, an older protagonist and regret her, her life regrets and sort of how she's ended up where she's going. So I always mention Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead, but it does really well the sort of like going back to a family starting point and taking us to a present day. Anne Napolitano, who wrote the beautiful book Dear Edward in 2019, has a book coming out in the spring called Hello Beautiful. It's a sibling story and it, it is perhaps not exactly right for this nonlinear lit fic in contemporary California. It's a sibling story, but it does a really great job of taking you through the course of a family's life and it's like seeing its generations. And in that same vein, I would look at like the Dutch house by Ann Patchett. And then to capture the feel of, you know, we've got a 50 year old main character who is dealing with like a failed romance. I would look at books by Ann Tyler, Alice McDermott, and Anna Quindlin, who are all really great at looking at sort of older, older characters. And I think even though none of them, they might not specifically deal with like a gender non-conforming spouse or partner, but they are going to capture that like, here I am at 50, here are all the things that are going on in my life. What, how do I reckon with them and deal with them? Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Number 21. I'm looking for additional comp titles for my upmarket novel, The Bay. When the salmon fishing boat 20-year-old Flora is working on docks at a fishing way station in remote Alaska, Flora finds herself enamored. She is quickly drawn into the sisterhood, an all-female community, and their self-sufficient way of life. Flora decides to stay behind on the island, throwing herself into the physical work and rhythms of the community. Everything seems perfect. She is making new friends, creating art, and has a budding romance with another woman. After a shocking accident involving a child, however, Flora begins to see the fault lines in this otherwise idyllic community. The Bay shares the themes of mother loss and divine assignments with Godshot by Chelsea Beaker, the atmospheric language and isolated community in A History of Wild Places by Shay Earnshaw, and the utopian idealism in Kevin Wilson's Perfect Little World. Thank you so much for your recommendations. Our caller, like you did my work for me. You, you, I think these are wonderful comps that you suggested. I think Godshot captures the 
community, this all-female sisterhood. It's got that the community vibe. I think a history of wild places and perfect little world. Vastly different books that might really capture different parts of the story. So I love, I love what you've said so far. Because it is set in Alaska, I will throw out Kristen Hanna's The Great Alone. I think the strength of that book, perhaps it's too big and she's too big, but I think the strength of The Great Alone was its Alaskan setting. And so I think it's worth mentioning because that to me was the best, the best part of that book was that you really, I felt like I was in Alaska and and we don't have that a lot. So I would consider it. K.A. Tucker also has written a series of books called Simple Wild that is romance, but also based in Alaska and really, really brings Alaska alive in, in those books as well. Okay, number 22. Hi, my name is Alex, and I'm looking for comp titles for my commercial women's fiction story entitled This Is Why I Need You. It's a multi-POV novel that plays with time and structure, and it's a story that spans a year in the life of four individual girlfriends. I have compared it to People We Meet on Vacation by Emily Henry and The Friends We Keep by Jane Green, but I'm not sure these comps are doing the work I need them to. Basically, the story is that The four best girlfriends go on this trip and they're just having a really tough time reconnecting. They're all at a precipice in their lives of something challenging coming up, but really the big deal is that they're all keeping secrets from each other and secrets don't make friends. Valentina ends up leaving early because her father has a heart attack and what we see is four best friends who end up going their separate ways. This book sheds light on the staying power of true friendships and what constitutes a good friend. It asks the question, how do you show up for yourself while still honoring the boundaries within? I love stories about particularly like our strong female friendships and the struggles that we go through. I think you're right. Our our caller is right that the people we meet on vacation might not be quite right because I think when people think of Emily Henry, we think of rom-com and we think of the romance piece of it first, at least I do. I think Friends We Keep by Jane Green may be a little bit too old, I, although I will take this opportunity to say how much I loved Jane Green's book last year called Sister Stardust, her first foray into historical fiction. It's late 60s, early 70s, like Swinging London and Morocco. Delicious. That is a complete aside. I instead, instead of Emily Henry and Jane Green, I would take a look at the books of J. Courtney Sullivan. So she writes like upmarket very accessible literary fiction, book club fiction, a lot about female friendships. So I would look at J. Courtney Sullivan. It'll be a pleasure to to dig through her list, I think. I would look at The Animators by Kayla Ray Whitaker when we're talking about like tensions in friendships and secrets that we keep from each other. And I would also look, it's a little bit older, but I think it's such a strong comp to friendships through the years and what we hide from each other and how our bonds persist. Meg Wallitzer's The Interestings, which I really loved. And that is a, that's a mixed group. So that is that is men and women. But it is a really good story about what is true friendship, what constitutes a good friend, what makes a friendship last and all those things. Yeah, I love The Interestings and The Animators, both amazing, amazing books. Okay, we have finally come to the end. Our last one. Hi, I'm looking for help with comps for my accessible literary novel or maybe upmarket women's fiction. It's a coming of age and love story set between 2000 and 2008. The narrator is a college student who is obsessed with music and very opinionated about it. She meets a singer-songwriter guy and starts critiquing his songs, making them much better in the process. And they fall for each other, 
but the dynamics of their collaboration keep getting in the way, especially after college when his band achieved some indie success. For comps, I'd really love to use normal people to capture that first big love that spans years, but I know that's too major. Tonally, it's probably closer to Emma Straub's work, except first person. I do think fans of High Fidelity would like it because of the music references, but that's too big and old. Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow has similar themes around collaboration, but it's a very different kind of book, much more plot-driven. So we need help. Thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Our last one. Okay, I love all of these comps that you mentioned. I love them all. Love normal people. I love Emma Straub. I met, fell in love with my husband in part because we talked about high fidelity the first night we met. Love tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. So I love all of these things that you're thinking of. I agree that I probably would not use normal people. Um, and and I think high fidelity is old, although I think it is so iconic that it might be worth mentioning. But if you want to mention Nick Hornby and and take it down a notch and bring it a little more recent, I would look at Juliet Naked. If you haven't read that book or seen the movie, the movie is kind of a hot mess as a lot of adaptations can be, but it is so charming. It's Ethan Hawke and Rose Byrne, and I loved it even despite its flaws. But it's got the 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 Nick Hornby music standby in it. Um, and it also has a character who is not the musician, but sort of critiques the the musician and then they fall for each other. So I would look at Juliet naked. And then there's a book coming out in just a couple of months that I suspect is going to do really well. And maybe by the time you're querying, this could have taken off and be a really good one. It's called Talking at Night by Claire Daverly. It is, it takes place in the 90s, or at least it references 90s music, but it really captures that first love feel and that feeling when you connect with someone on a really special level, but it follows them sort of through the years. And so of course there's conflict. So I would be on the lookout for talking at night by Claire Daverly and see if that feels right. And in the meantime, Juliet naked is, would be a fun one to investigate. Wonderful, Emily. Thank you so much for all of these amazing, amazing suggestions. For our listeners, if you read one of these books, if it resonates, please post about it on socials and, you know, tag Emily and myself. We're starting to see those posts coming through where people are like, Emily told me to read this and it's absolutely perfect. So, so let us know what you think. And Emily, we look forward to chatting with you again next month. Thank you so much. I can't wait calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. 
Hi everyone, it's Femi Omosade, your favourite bookstagrammer. I am back and I am joined by a very special guest. She is the co-founder of Surviving Out Loud, a fund that provides support for survivors of sexual assault. She's also the founder of Black Pens, a writing retreat for Black women. Someday Maybe is her debut. It's fantastic and it's my pleasure to welcome Oni to the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure to be here. Uh, we're so happy to have you. I have quite a lot to talk to you about your book today. There's a lot to get through. So we're just going to get straight in there. So I actually just finished the book uh, because we're reading it for book club uh, this month. So I literally just finished the book last night. And I can't tell you how much I love this book. I really, really love this book. It spoke to me. But for those who are unfamiliar with the book, in your own words, can you tell us a little bit about what the book is about? Sure. So Someday Maybe is, it follows my protagonist Eve in the immediate aftermath of her husband Quentin's sudden suicide. And it's how she navigates the grief that comes from a sudden loss like that um, and how community plays a massive part in how bolstering somebody along, sometimes in a little bit of an annoying way, sometimes in a way that she doesn't know that she actually needs. So we, we get to learn a lot about her and her family and her friends and just her life with Quentin before he died. And as you mentioned before, it is about grief. And from the first page, we, the reader's kind of thrown in there. And this is not a spoiler. Straight it's straight in <laughs> straight there. Straight this is there. not a spoiler because this is on the synopsis. It's, it's yeah. in the blurb. Eve, she finds her husband dead. And as, as I mentioned before, we are reading it for book club. And a couple of my book club members, they have been through grief and they've been through loss, and myself included. And as we've been talking about the book, we've been saying how is this how how is this author how was she able to manage to capture how I felt when I was going through this there's no way that this author has not been through what we've been through because just the things that you were saying so for example when you said Eve now she now divides her life between before and after which is something mm -hmm. that I do and I didn't actually think that people uh, do that so before the death and after the death that's how she looks at her life so little yeah. things like that it made us think that there's no way this author has not been through some sort of loss. So are you mm. able to tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind the story? Of course. So the book actually is a kind of labor of love for a very dear friend of mine who a long time ago, she actually unexpectedly lost her husband to suicide as well. And in her, the supporting of her, I kind of like packed my bags a little bit, moved in with her for a little bit just to be there as her in-person support, you know, after everyone else had like kind of gone back to their lives. And I really was at a loss to know how to really help her in any way. You know, when you see someone suffering that you love, you just want to be there for them and help them in the best way possible. Kept asking her, what can I, what can I do? What can I do? And she's like, I want you to write about grief. And I was like, no, absolutely not. I, I can't imagine what you're going through. I have never lost a spouse before. And she was like, yeah, but you've lost somebody and I don't have the words to be able to describe how I'm feeling and long story short she kind of bullied me into writing it um, into writing about grief it wasn't a novel that I came up with for her it was like a stream of consciousness type thing it wasn't novel length at all it was quite short but she really loved it and then she encouraged me to turn it into something that might touch other people and other people might relate to which is where someday maybe came about I came up with the plot characters it's all fiction though but yeah I mean 
apart from that inspiration, I think every single person is going to or has experienced some form of loss. It's not really something that any one of us can avoid. Like, unfortunately, death is the thing that catches up with, with everybody. And grief is simultaneously uniting and isolating. And I just wanted to bring that to life in a story and in a character that many people might be able to look at and say like I get it I get what she's feeling so yeah mm-hmm. and if you just mentioned that grief is something that everyone will go through maybe mm-hmm. they've been through it already or they will go through it and I, I've, I've read a lot of books but not many books have been able to capture the motions of grief the feeling of feeling like you're alone even though you have all your family and all your friends Mm -hmm. around you you feel so isolated and so alone but somehow Mm -hmm. you were able to capture that is there any book that you could compare it to or you know as you were writing I know that you said it was kind of inspired by your friend but was Mm -hmm. there a book that you had in mind or perhaps a film that you had in mind there wasn't actually what I thought I mean I've read tons as a writer and just a lover of, of books I've read tons and tons of books and watched tons of films and maybe subconsciously there's things that are in the back of my head when I'm writing but really it was drawing from my own personal experience on losing loved ones and how that impacted me and how exactly like you said at times I felt oh maybe I'm all right and then I really wasn't all right or times where I was like I love that my family and my friends are here and they I'm surrounded by this cocoon of love but I still feel devastated and it's not that I'm ungrateful it's just that nobody gets how I feel that's that's literally when you're in it you really feel like nobody's ever felt like you felt and so it was a lot of personal experience that I drew on just to to bring it to life and and you definitely brought the story to life because I feel as if we were right there with with (laughs) Eve in the trenches in in the pits of her despair we were right there with her and and it is quite a heavy book because of the subject matter it's it's not a happy book how did you find writing it was it hard for you to write it did you have to take breaks did you find it emotionally draining how did you find writing the book it was tough at times and I did take breaks no matter what I'm writing I have to take breaks otherwise my brain will literally just melt yeah I had to step back from it a bit and I encourage people that are reading it to take it in chunks because again I wanted to make it as realistic as possible and unfortunately a lot of us take a long time to get over something like this it's not something that next week next month even next year you'll be like oh well I'm completely fine now that's just not how it goes like wave grief comes in waves it's not linear at all yeah it it took me a while to write and I did take breaks but I didn't find it emotionally draining probably because I made sure that I put humor in there and lighter moments and a lot of love in there as well to like kind of break things up a little bit so Mm -hmm. yeah and that was actually one of my questions to you uh Mm -hmm. the use of humor is, is that kind of like your personality or because there was a lot of dark humor I mean I found myself laughing and smiling Mm -hmm. and even when I was talking to my friends they were like oh what are you reading and I'm like I'm reading this book and it's about grief but I'm smiling they were like Femi are you okay I'm like no (laughs) it's actually quite funny um so was was that your personality in there was that based off of your friend or I think it's a lot of me definitely a lot of me in there but I think broader than that you know, as just Nigerians and Black people in general, like we 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 joke about everything. It's a kind of a, a defense mechanism and just a way that we pull ourselves through when we're, when, like you said, we're in the trenches. Humor always uplifts us and elevates us and it, it helps us feel like we can actually get to the other side. We don't know when, but at some point. And I just felt like 
aside from grief and everything and you know suicide and mental health those being huge heavy subjects I was just like if I was if I had lost a spouse there would still be moments that my friends or my dad would say something and I'd just be like are you actually joking and then smile catch myself smiling and that's how I would be to, to my people as well mm-hmm. so yeah there's, there's a bit there's a bit of me in there yeah definitely <laughs> And like you said, I think it kind of reflects life. If this book was just so sad and so depressing, there weren't any moments of of light or of joy. Is, is that what life is? Even when exactly. you are down in the dumps, you do catch yourself smiling if someone has said something. So that very much mirrors life. Just a little bit about your friend. Has she had a chance to read the book? Has she said anything? Oh, yeah. I mean, before this saw anybody, the light of day, before I showed it to an agent, other readers anything I showed it to her first and if she hated it it wouldn't exist but she absolutely loved it and the dedication aside from my parents the J in the dedication that's that's her I'm glad that she loved it because if she didn't love it we would not have had the book so I'm very (laughs) thankful that she loved it so we spoke a little bit about how the book kind of starts straight away we get right in there in terms of Eve finding her husband why did you decide to start the story in that manner because I know that some people they do say that you should kind of build to perhaps the the main parts of the story some Mm -hmm. authors believe that perhaps you shouldn't start a book in such a note but you Mm -hmm. did so and you did so very well but but why Mm -hmm. did you decide to do so in that manner? I think in some previous drafts, I'd started it slightly before the event. And when I read it back, I was just like, everybody knows what's going to happen. It's part of human nature that we actually want to get our arms around. How did this happen? And and how could I have maybe prevented this from happening? As you can see, Eve, that's a refrain from her throughout the book. Mm -hmm. But I was just like, no, I, I just part of human nature and just part of life in general is that you're not often given a neat, tidy bow. Like, Sometimes you have no clue what's coming and you're just in it immediately and you have to figure out a way to deal with it. And we've all been there. We're still in it with this, this pandemic. Um, but Can it go like, away? Like, people like, saying COVID 2023. I was like, nope, nope, I reject it. It's not I refuse, happening. <laughs> I'm not doing that. No lockdowns again. But seriously, that's just that's just life. And I tried my best to, to like, literally, I wanted it to be a mirror of life because you can't sometimes you're just not able to prepare before you're blindsided by something as awful as as grief and I wanted to I wanted Eve to just be dropped right into the middle of it and for the reader to to be dropped right into the middle of it with her so yeah just wow because that's just kind of how I felt when I lost my dad it was very unexpected Mm -hmm. just the things that you're saying that's why I just keep on nodding I know Mm -hmm. our listeners will not be able to see but I'm just (laughs) nodding I'm nodding because I can just relate to this on so many levels so you mentioned a little bit about the draft so can you tell us a little bit about your publication journey and the journey from sitting at home writing your book to being on Good Morning America because it was a book club pick so can you tell us a little bit about the journey still can't believe that but yeah so what happened I think it wasn't actually the first of our many lockdowns 2020 I believe and I've been sitting on this for a while and my friends and family have been prodding me they're like okay are you actually going to do something with this thing that you've written and I'm like I don't know you know probably just going to go in the drawer with the other three books that I've written that will never see the light of day and then they were like absolutely not like you you have to do something with this and then my who eventually became my American publishers they put out an an open call for 
unagented black writers at the time and they said send us 50 pages of a work that you have if you don't have an agent we'd love to critique it and give you advice on how you can go about getting an agent and finding a publisher so I did that I didn't know that they'd been inundated with submissions so they ended up having like 800 plus submissions so I didn't hear back from them for a long time and in that period I found my my agent Amy I'd shortlisted about five agents that I wanted to contact after stalking them online, visiting their their websites and seeing what they were looking for in their wish list. And Amy signed me. And shortly after I was signed by Amy, Kat, who eventually became my US editor, she contacted me and she said, listen, this is you've got something special here. I would actually like to talk to you a bit more about it. At which point I had to say, I'm really sorry I have an agent right now, but I've CC'd her into the email. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that Kat and Amy spoke and Kat asked that when the, the manuscript was ready for submission um, to go out to editors that she be included in that list. And the rest is like... It's, the rest it's, is history. It's just, <laughs> the rest is history. Kat loved it so much that she she immediately bid on the, the manuscript and here I am. She's amazing. Amy's amazing. My UK publishers, One World, they're also absolutely outstanding. It's just been a a whirlwind and so surreal I still can't believe what's happening mm-hmm. so yeah so so you would say it was quite a smooth journey would you say compared to perhaps some other journeys that, that, that you've heard of or yeah I sometimes feel a bit weird about talking about my publication journey because I was gearing up you hear horror stories sometimes like I was rejected a hundred times 150 times and I, that's what I was trying to mentally and emotionally prepare myself for and that just that didn't happen so I was just like when people ask me I'm like yeah it's not too conventional maybe of a publishing journey but I'm so grateful if it was like Amy literally she was the second agent that I contacted and within 48 hours I was signed so and it was the right choice absolutely she's amazing yeah it was just meant to be your book was just meant to be out there it was just meant to be you mentioned that you you have three other books in the drawer of like books that you've written before they're so bad (laughs) (laughs) books when I've written from like when I started from like when I was 17 18 they're so bad they will never be seen again so ever (laughs) ever (laughs) I am working on book two but it's it's brand new it's nothing to do with those ones so yeah (laughs) are you able to tell us a little bit about book two and the reason why I ask this is because book one someday maybe is quite a heavy book let's use that term a heavy book do Mm. you feel pressure to perhaps show your range and perhaps write something that's completely different or have you found your niche or are you able to tell us a little bit about what's coming up next so I write grief and love very well but I don't feel pressure to show range as it were I write what I I write what's on my heart and so the next book, I don't want to give too much away, but the next book is is more kind of on the button, finger on the button type issues. So whatever I write is going to have elements of humor in it, even if it does have heavy subject matter in it. And it is, I think a lot of things that I write will, will touch on important or not necessarily heavy, but important subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, social media is kind of the the big thing the cent- one of the central themes in my next novel okay. um, but, but that's also very funny so uh, or at least I hope it is <laughs> so yeah I don't I don't really feel pressure because I write what I feel like I would like to read and are, are you reading anything right now or 
I am, I'm reading a couple of things. So the thing I'm reading and loving at the moment is a novel called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. And it's been on a bunch of lists, but I I got it a few days ago and I'm racing through it. It is absolutely outstanding. It's so good. Um, Gabrielle's ability to develop characters and do world, um, world building and it's just outstanding and just the pacing is brilliant everything is great I'm loving it I already know I'll give it five stars so yeah. oh wow it's funny yeah. enough because we're reading that for book club next month so <laughs> and I, I haven't read it so you've endorsed it I have high yeah. hopes now I, I hope I hope that like I mean for me I'm a bit of a nerd so and it is around like video games and things like that but I feel like anyone can enjoy the novel it's just great it really is yeah okay well I'm excited to read it just just a couple more questions because our time is running away from us did you learn anything about yourself whilst you were writing this book oh gosh definitely I have to plan I have to plan my the way I write in my novels I have to do character profiles I have to do plot summaries I have to do chapter outlines I didn't do that with Someday Maybe which is why it took so bloody long to complete and this second one I feel like I have found my rhythm a lot quicker and I'm moving through it a lot quicker and that's because I have a whole one note notebook online on the computer just dedicated to everything that I need in that book and it's just having everything in one place really helps me just move through things and organize things a lot that's my probably slightly type a neurodivergent brain network I just can't freewheel it I have to have an idea of where I'm going so yeah and I guess to all the writers that are listening so being organized would you say that's like a top top tip for me and I think for other kind of maybe slightly neurodivergent and type a people absolutely but it does I know that that method doesn't work for anybody so I'd say try it mm-hmm. and if you find yourself you feel find yourself feeling too restricted or boxed in then just do away with it and do what feels comfortable so yeah and did you write the story in a certain structure? So did you start from the beginning and work your way to the end? Or did you write the middle first or the ending first? Or was there some sort of structure in how you wrote it? I always write chronologically. Again, that's my brain. I cannot okay. do it another way. But mm-hmm. what I do have is a section in my notebook called snippets. And that's those little bits and pieces, those words or phrases or scenes that come to you while you're in the shower or at, you know, and you quickly pick up your phone and open the notes app and type that I have a section just for that so I I don't even know sometimes where those things are going to slot in but I always make sure that I note them down but I I always write chronologically otherwise I just get myself all wound up and in a mess so yeah and that works for you so I guess to any writer listening do what works for you absolutely yeah there's no one way to to write a book and to complete a piece of work that you're working on do what works for you absolutely absolutely and what does the title mean someday maybe I mean it's something that um even Q said to themselves a few times while he was still alive when you know they were young and thought that they had forever and they didn't and so they were making all these kind of grand plans someday maybe maybe we'll have a kid or we'll do this or we'll do that and aside from that it's Eve's journey through the book it's like is she going to be okay is she going to come to a place of peace and happiness and it's kind of like someday maybe not sure don't know so that's kind of why it just made sense for me to pluck that out of the novel itself and make it the the kind of title for the the book so yeah Mm. and and would you say that's part of the overall message of the story we say someday maybe but we don't actually know what the future holds we don't know what tomorrow holds that we're all kind of on on borrowed time what would you say is the ultimate 
message of this book? What would you want your readers to take away? I will say that, number one, there's no correct way to grieve. There's no one-size-fits-all way to grieve. Grieve in the way that you need to grieve. Even if it's messy, even if it's like prolonged, you'll get to where you're going eventually. That's the main thing that, that I wanted to get across. The second thing is that you don't have to do this alone. And there's so many different kinds of love because Eve becomes very hyper-focused on her marriage and her romantic relationship with her husband. And that's wonderful. And romantic love is wonderful, but so is platonic love. And so is familiar love. And so is community. And um, that's a big thing in my own personal life. And it's something that I probably will touch on in all of in whatever I write going forward. Mm-hmm. So, and definitely mm-hmm. in this one, it's one of the central themes. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a great way to end our conversation. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. As I mentioned before, this book, it really did speak to me. And for anyone who hasn't read it, please go and read it. For any writers listening, I think this is a great example of how to write a character-driven story, how to write a grief kind of heavy story. But it doesn't feel heavy. You do, you're just you're just right there with her. And I just think everyone should read it. Everyone should pick it up. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for reading. And thank you so much for having me on the, the podcast. And I can't wait for to talk to you, you know, later on this month. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, We're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at C.C. Lira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. 
Great news! The Beta Reader Matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.